My next guest is going to talk to us all about trust and how to handle professional relationships without making them feel transactional. If you enjoy learning about psychology and social psychology around why we behave the way we do in certain situations and how to build trust through helping people feel seen, heard, and understood, then you're going to love this episode. And if you're a consultant who works directly with executive leadership and CEOs, I highly recommend that you keep listening too. Without further ado, let's go meet Dr. Bill Pasmore. Welcome to the Handle Everything podcast, where people who have a lot on their plate come to learn how to open doors to opportunities by handling it all in a healthy way. I'm your host, Tara Bradford, a former ICU nurse turned executive coach. I'm here with Dr. Bill Pasmore. Bill is a professor at Columbia University, a senior vice president at the Center for Creative Leadership, and leads his own consulting firm, Advanced Change. He is an active consultant and speaker, working with executives on digital organizational design, leadership development, change, and senior team effectiveness. Advanced Consulting, on which this podcast is based, is his 30th book. Welcome to the show, Bill. Thank you, Tara. Good to be with you. I start off every episode by asking, how full is your plate? Can you give us a quick peek into your day-to-day life? Sure. It's very full. I have a couple of primary jobs, as you mentioned, teaching at Columbia and also being a senior vice president at the Center for Creative Leadership, where I do work with our clients of various kinds. But I also have my own consulting firm, and I do research through the university, and I advise students. So I keep quite a busy schedule. And do you have any time for fun? Oh, sure. I mean, you have to (laughs) leave time for fun, right? So for me, it's mostly on weekends, and I suppose that's true for a lot of our listeners. Weeks get filled up pretty quickly. But you also have to plan far enough out that you leave time for a vacation now and then. I know I need that. I hope our Listeners are doing that too. (laughs) That's so important. So is that how you would say you handle everything you plan ahead and prioritize? Well, you know, in our business, you really can't plan ahead completely because we have to be client responsive. So it's a matter of just understanding that your calendar is going to fill up with lots of things that you haven't necessarily planned. Of course, the major trips, international and so forth, are well planned in advance, but there's a lot of day-to-day things that pop up. And I know, like you, I use a calendar scheduler that is really helpful. To give people a link where they can find open times in my calendar has been a lifesaver, because otherwise you spend hours trying to find open times in your calendar, suggest them to people, and then, of course, by the time they schedule back with you, they're filled again. So uh, you start over. So that's a marvelous invention and one that I recommend strongly for busy people. That's so true. So do you leave spots in your calendar specifically for those things to pop up so that it doesn't overwhelm you or stress you out trying to fit them in? Well, I do. I know what days I'm teaching, so that's easy. I'm going to be available before I teach, and I'm going to probably leave most of the time free on Thursdays and Fridays for those kinds of things to happen. And then I try to schedule things that I know that I need to do with people on Tuesdays and Wednesdays usually. So that's how I handle my weeks. That's great. And when you do feel overwhelmed or stressed, as we all do, what is the first sign that that's starting to creep up? Well, I notice I'm walking faster (laughs) (laughs) as if that's going to help me. 
you know, to get to wherever I'm going faster is going to save me. It doesn't. So I know at that point that I need to take care of myself. And I think we all should have signs that we need to take care of ourselves. So I also can feel some stress or tension in my shoulders as I'm going through the day. And I find myself cutting off conversations more quickly than I should. Those are all signs for me that it's time to slow down, take a break, ease up, and allow yourself to recover before you go back into the fray. It sounds like you have a great sense of awareness around those things. Those are pretty early signs. Yeah, they help. (laughs) (laughs) That doesn't mean I don't get into trouble, and I think we all do. Right. uh, You know, keeping a routine also helps a lot. I'm sure a lot of our listeners also have routines. For me, it's getting up early and making sure I exercise first thing in the day and have a chance to take care of myself and some quiet time to catch up on emails and just be at peace for a little while before the day starts. (laughs) And then the day will go as long as it does and start again tomorrow. But for me, if I didn't have that quiet time in the morning, I don't think I could make it through the day. That's so important. And you mentioned sometimes we get into trouble. And I know you have a wealth of experience both in teaching and applying the things that you teach to your own consulting firm. Is there a time that you'd like to share with us when you were under a lot of pressure and you turned it into an opportunity? I'm sure you have a lot to choose from. (laughs) I do. There's a lot of times when that happens. And generally, it's around a client assignment that I have been invested in for some time. So it's a client that I've been working with. My calendar is already full for the week in question. And the client is asking if I can possibly be available for a meeting or a call during that time that's already booked. And sometimes it's double or triple booked. <laughs> you know, this is this is the reality of life these days. So, you know, when I find myself in that situation where I'm trying to rearrange things, I've discovered that in 99% of the cases, the people that you're booked with are very flexible if you get to them uh, ahead of time and explain the situation and understanding. You can't do that too often with any one person. But generally speaking, we're all living these crazy, busy lives these days. And people do understand that things come up and sometimes there need to be changes. And it's not uncommon for me when I have to call someone and explain what's happening and ask for a rescheduling that they say, oh, well, thank you, because I also have a ton of work I have to get done. Yeah. Actually, it'd be better for me if we could push out a week. So that's wonderful when that happens doesn't always happen. And I'm not always able to accommodate a request like that from a client. There are sometimes things that I can't change. I feel terrible about that. But they also have to understand that a last-minute call can't always be responded. And how do you turn that around? How does that conversation go when you have to tell them no to their request and they're your client and you're still trying to provide excellent customer service and maintain the relationship? Well, I'll offer a phone call in the evening or on a weekend. I'm happy to have those conversations when client is available to have them at another time other than the one that they're asking for. So I'll go out of my way to let them know I'm really concerned about having that conversation Mm -hmm. or that meeting, whatever it happens to be, and that I'll go through whatever it takes to make sure that I get to them as quickly as I possibly can. And I think that that's the kind of thing where if you're trying to be in this work these days with people who are expecting you to provide great customer service, that you have to be willing to make those kinds of sacrifices. And a lot of people put rigid boundaries around their lives and times. And I understand, you know, why they do that. Family is important. But in this world today, you know, the expectations are very high that you're going to be flexible and that you should be the one that's flexible, not your client. You know, you shouldn't be asking them to, to reschedule for you unless you really have to. Generally speaking, I think they understand the sincerity of the efforts that I make to try to 
reaccommodate them as quickly as possible. Absolutely. And I know we talked a little bit about stress relief and preventing stress from creeping up by starting your morning with some quiet time and a morning routine. But even with the morning routine in place, when these things creep into your calendar and you're trying to keep everyone happy, both at work and at home, and you're going home and bringing work home with you because that one call needed to be rescheduled at night or on the weekend, how do you relieve your own stress so that it doesn't affect your personal life or your professional life when you're juggling all of these things? My wife is very good at letting me know when I'm overdoing it, and I listen to her, and she always has good advice, and it usually means that I'm going to set aside whatever I'm doing, even if it's fairly urgent, at least for an hour or two to allow myself some time to be with her and just recenter and relax, and then get back to it later on or first thing in the morning, whatever I can do. There's only so much any of us can do. Sometimes we try to do too much. And when that happens to me, you know, I try to work through it. And if I can't, then you know, I come to grips with the fact that this is just going to be too much. And I'm going to have to think about rescheduling and some time to, to do this. And it might be, you know, getting up an hour earlier or something to accommodate that at a time when I'm not imposing on anybody else's schedule except my own. So I tend to manage it that way. You know, it's interesting. I just wanted to share that uh, years ago, I was doing interviews of famous world change leaders like Desmond Tutu and other people who recognize who have won Nobel Prizes. And I wasn't expecting them to tell me this because I didn't have a particular question about it, but they all mentioned finding time in their day to either meditate or exercise or do something that gave them space for themselves to plan out their day and think about the priorities that they faced and then reorder their lives and get ready for what was to come. And I found that very interesting. These people who are you know, doing the Lord's work in terms of trying to save the world uh, also needed to find some time for themselves in order to go out and do that. So it's an interesting thing. That's a great point. And I wanted to go back to what you said about your wife real quick, too, because you said even when you're stressed out, she will let you know. And you actually pause and listen. So instead of getting defensive, you pay attention to what other people around you are saying and take that time out or take that time for yourself or to connect with others to kind of reset. Because when we're stressed out, it's so hard to even deliver quality work if we've let it get out of control, which brings me to why I asked you to be on the podcast to talk about handling relationships, in particular professional relationships, without making them feel transactional, which is part of your new book coming out titled Advanced Consulting, Earning Trust at the Highest Level. Indeed. <laughs> so trust is just one part of what you talk about in the book. But how would you define trust in professional relationships between advanced consultants and senior leaders? Well, I think it's a personal relationship that the person that I'm working with believes that I am there for them, that it is not a business transaction. I am not there because my goal is to earn as much money as I possibly can within a short period of time and working with them, and that I don't expect the relationship to be a long-term one or to continue beyond whatever the immediate project or work is. And I think a lot of us do get busy, and we have multiple projects that we're working on, and Perhaps we're in a large firm where we're expected to be busy with clients a certain percentage of our time, and that causes us to 
kind of rush from client to client and project to project and lose track of the fact that it's really about the, the relationship that you have with the people that you're working with as clients. And they need to have a feeling that you're there because you care about them as human beings and not simply because you're doing something that's going to help them be more effective in their business or take care of a specific problem or challenge that they're having. They certainly have those and they certainly expect you to help with those kinds of things. That's kind of what the work is about, obviously. That's why they bring you in. It's not that they're lacking friends or that they don't have other acquaintances in their lives and they need someone to talk to because you hear about people being lonely at the top. That's not really true. They're bombarded with relationships and people who are dying to spend time with them. So it's a matter of finding, you know, a few quality relationships rather than simply picking up the phone or answering every email that you get, right? Right. Uh, so they're trying to understand from their perspective, is this person who's sitting across from me somebody that I want to invest time and energy in to bring them along to the point where they understand enough about me and my situation and my context that I can actually ask them some fairly deep, important questions to me and have a conversation with them that is going to be helpful to me in terms of taking my thinking farther than it could have gone on my own. But the investment that it takes on their part to do that is not inconsequential. They have to really want to invest in you as somebody who is a trusted advisor. And if you don't make time to listen, if you're not attentive, if you're not available, if you're not really curious about them as people, if you don't empathize with them in terms of what they're going through, if you don't understand what it's like for them to be them in the situation that they're in and reflect that back to them in a way that they know you get it, then they're likely to decide not to invest in you. And once they make that decision that you're a vendor, you're a supplier, you're just another consultant, you don't have a chance of building that relationship with them. They've closed the door to that being a possibility. And you may be able to complete your project. And they might even hire you for another project down the road, but they're not going to bring you inside their world in a very personal way. It allows you to have a relationship with them where they feel comfortable calling you on a Saturday and saying, I've got a quick question I just need to ask, or calling you before a big meeting that they're having and saying, gee, I'm really not sure what I want to do with this particular person or this situation. And it's when you receive those calls where they treat you like a friend and they're asking for advice that you know you've kind of broken through that external barrier that they have to put up to keep the world out in order to be able to have sane lives themselves. That's a great point. And you mentioned how you get in the door by building this relationship, but you also have to maintain the relationship throughout the project. So it's about both sides of the coin, right? It is. It is. I mean, some people think that going in and delivering the report and having a one-hour meeting about the report, explaining it to the client, is what the work is about. But I find that's the minimal, <laughs> minimum requirement <laughs> in terms of getting the work and keeping the work. But if you want to establish a trusting relationship, it's all the things that go on outside of that that matter. Mm -hmm. So it's the work that you do before you ever meet the client to prepare or the meeting with them so that you know a little bit about them and their history and their company and the situation and you're prepared to interact with them about what kinds of things they might bring up to you. It's when you meet them, you know, not talking over them, not trying to sell them something right away. It's really as you would a friend getting to know them. You know, I always tell my 
students of consulting, lunch is your most important opportunity to <laughs> develop a relationship because breakfast is all about getting things done and moving on to the day. And dinner is far too long if you're just establishing a relationship. So lunch is kind of the perfect time to have enough time to have a conversation, not feel rushed about it, and not to have to concentrate just on work or business. So you need to have lunch <laughs> often with your clients and allow time for life to be part of the conversation as well as the work. And then after you've had conversations, you need to follow up. You really need to think about what would I want to have somebody say to me or provide to me as a result of that conversation that would help me to enact some of the things that we talked about, to provide me with some more support or something I can read very quickly that will help me understand what I'm supposed to do, or just simply to let people know that you know, you're thinking about them, you care about them, you want them to do well in what it is that you've discussed. And so it's not like just handing the report over is going to make all of that happen. Right. And one of the things I heard you mention over and over again was remembering, remembering what was important to them, remembering what they said, remembering the next steps moving forward that they wanted to achieve beyond that report. When you're juggling, let's say, 10 clients at the same time, how do you remember those key points about each relationship so that you can remind yourself to bring those up the next time you have an opportunity to connect with that client? Sure. Well, you know, I used to have a good memory, but <laughs> like all other people who, you know, get a little bit older, it's not as good as it used to be. So I now know that if I don't take notes during the meeting and then after the meeting, when I have time on my own, go back and review those notes and type them up and add details from my memory of the meeting. But the next time I talk to that person, if I don't do that, I will have no recall on what it was <laughs> in the last meeting. I just know that's the truth. And so by going through that process of taking notes and then immediately, or as quickly as I can after the meeting, typing those up and adding you know, other things that come to mind as I recall what was talked about, I can go back and review that before my next conversation with that person. And I'm so thankful that I have those notes before I start the next conversation. It's like, oh, yes, I remember we did talk about this, this, this. And that's what I wanted to bring up in the next meeting. And make a note to myself, I think this is what we should talk about the next time we get together. And it's just so helpful to do the extra work to do that because it's a gift to yourself that you don't have to try to remember everything that happened. And God forbid that, you know, the client is the one who's reminding you. You know, last time we talked, you said you were going to do X, Y, or Z, and that didn't happen. That's not something that you want to see take place, right? Right. Absolutely. And now we have technology. I know you've been in business long enough to go from pen and paper to now we have Zoom and you can record phone calls and you can have notes on your smartphone. Do you find that the best way to build the relationship when you're right in front of the client is to still write it on paper so you're not distracted? I find that particularly with the clients at the highest levels of organizations, they don't want to be recorded. They just feel uncomfortable about that. And I don't want to put that barrier between them and me mm -hmm. as, as we're having a conversation. So it really is a matter of maintaining eye contact, being engaged in the conversation, active listening, repeating back what they're saying. And so you have to train yourself in the art of writing notes to yourself while you're not looking at the page so that you can keep enough information about the meeting down on paper to know what was said and what was discussed without it being all the details. 
And while I would love to have recordings of the session so I could go back over them, I'm not sure I would ever find the time to listen to a full recording anyway. <laughs> so for me, the notes are the essence of it. And then the work to go through that and type it up as quickly as possible afterwards is what really helps me to be able to recall what's important. And not everything you talk about is important. So if you were to record a session, you know, there are other things we're talking about during conversations, whether they be about family or life or things outside of work that you don't really need to recall from that conversation. But there are some really important points you don't want to forget. Right. So it's important to go back to what we talked about at the beginning and prioritizing the things that you're putting on your calendar. Well, it is because if you don't leave yourself time to do the work around the edges that you need to do before and after meetings, then you wind up showing up for meetings that you're really not prepared to have or forgetting to do the work afterwards that you promised to do. And neither of those are very good for building trust with very high level power clients who you know expect the very best from you in terms of your attention and you know, your help. That's what they're looking for. And to under-deliver on that means you won't have a client for very long. <laughs> right. And in the book, you also give real-world examples of how consultants can advance to more senior positions in their own firms or build a successful independent consulting firm. Could you share one of those examples and the specific challenges that were faced? Well, I can talk from my own experience. You know, I was very fortunate to have mentors in my life who made a huge difference to my understanding of how to do this work. Starting with a professor in graduate school when I was getting my doctorate, and he was an active consultant, and he was kind enough to invite me along on a project that he was doing. And I learned so much from observing him and the things that he had me do and so forth that to just get a start in this field was critically important. And then later, you know, I had other mentors like David Adler, who founded Delta Consulting, a brilliant man, professor at Columbia for a time until he founded his firm and then did that full time. And I joined him after he had grown the firm to quite some size, 40 consultants or so. And clientele was CEOs, boards, you know, the right people in the right firms. And as I joined that organization, you know, my first experience was six weeks of orientation where I learned how they did their work. And people who knew me said, well, you've been doing this for 20 years. You must have been bored or frustrated with having to go through that. And I said, absolutely the opposite. It was just <laughs> wonderful to have that amount of time to learn how these people did their magic and to understand you know, the intellectual property that they were applying and to see how they did the work with clients and to meet some of the clients and so forth. So if you can find somebody who's a senior partner who's willing to best in and to mentor and to provide you with the kind of training and view into that world, it's really invaluable. And the most important learning that took place took place after the door was closed to the CEO's office. And it was just two of us with the CEO. And then the real conversations were taking place, which, you know, until you observe them, until you have a feel for them, you don't really get what happens when the door closes. And so you as a younger consultant, you might think the thing I'm supposed to do is to sell this product or project using the approach that we've been taught to use. And it's all laid out for us in terms of exactly what we're supposed to say and the process that we're supposed to describe. And that comes across as a very incompetent salesperson trying to convince somebody to buy something. You know, when the door is closed in the C-suite, you're having a real conversation with somebody who's trying to make some crucially important decisions about 
people on their own team or whether to do a merger acquisition and what are some of the concerns they have about that, whether they're thinking about finding a successor and so forth. And you know enough not to come in and start by selling something, but rather by you know, just sitting down and being available and listening, finding out what's on their mind and responding to it in a way that demonstrates that you have credibility, that you've been around the block, that you understand these things, that you appreciate the gravity of the situation and the choices that they're facing, and that you can account for how others have done that and what the consequences of that were. And so it's not so much the technical knowledge that you have. If you were an IT consultant, it would be different if you were designing a system or something, or even a legal consultant or a financial consultant. There are things that you have to know and be able to do in order to demonstrate credibility to your client your capability to get a certain kind of project or job done. But in the work that we do, the real credibility is in this trust building. It's in the understanding of their world. It's knowing who they are and what they're facing and the choices that they're likely to have to make. And if you have been there and appreciate that, then it's much easier to win work than if you're going in without any experience. So my advice to people based on my own experience and watching it in firms that do it really well is that you need mentors who are invested in developing people and are willing to take junior people with them into that closed-door room where the important things are getting done. And as a junior person in that closed-door room, what are you observing or what are you taking in in that moment? Well, you know, your job is to observe and to learn. It's not to shape the conversation with the client. That's going on with the senior partner in the room. And the client, the CEO, understands the situation. You're there as somebody who is obviously you know, learning and needing to understand the issues. Probably somebody who the senior partner is going to turn to and say, you know, after this meeting, I expect you to do this, this, and this so that we can provide support. And so they understand the reason that you're there. You're not there as an accessory. <laughs> you're there because you have a function to serve. But you're not expected to be the person carrying the conversation in the beginning. Over time, that becomes more true. As you work with a more senior person and you've been around the block a few times, you do start to join in the conversation, both ask questions and provide support. And in the best cases, you know, you start to understand enough so that the senior partner transitions the work to you. They move on, start another project. You carry on with this one until you're at a level of experience where you can start going out and developing work as a senior partner for others which, you know, takes time, takes some experience, but is the goal of eventually being able to do the same for others. And you mentioned mergers and acquisitions and transitions like that, that you're being hired as a consultant to help the CEO navigate. And a few other things mentioned in your book, besides merger integration, is culture change and system-wide transformation, which are all high stakes and really stressful for the people who have hired you to help them through this transition. And so in those situations, when the stakes are high and the stress levels are high and people are being really vulnerable behind those closed doors, it makes sense that sometimes trust might be unintentionally broken between the consultant and the high-level executives. If that happens, what are some things people can do to restore trust or how could you anticipate potential challenges and avoid them? Well, you know, certainly in this world of complex change, we know that change fails often 
sometimes more than half the time, major changes don't succeed in terms of achieving the goals they were intended to achieve or within the time frame they were supposed to happen or within the budget they were supposed to happen. So there are lots of forces that make successful change difficult. And as an advisor to senior level people who are about to do something like a merger or acquisition or some other organizational transformation, organization redesign, you certainly have to let them know up front that they're undertaking you know, a risky activity in terms of being able to assure them that the outcomes are going to be exactly what they imagine. And you're better off if you say, this is something that we're going to do together and we're going to have to take into account the events as they occur that we can't predict in advance what will happen during this rather complex process. And some of those things could be messy and difficult, but we'll work through them together. And so you start by letting people know what they're getting into rather than surprising them with the fact that something (laughs) doesn't work when it happens. And you say, well, gee, I didn't expect that to happen. And now what do we do? But instead you say, you know, I've been through this before. These are always difficult kinds of changes to make work. And here are some things that we can do to make it easier or better, less risky. But at the same time, you know, every time we do a major change like this, a merger or an organization redesign or digital transformation, it's the first time for that person in that organization. They've never done exactly that thing before. And one of my colleagues always used to say that the hard thing about being a CEO is that you're doing things for the first time in public, in front of everyone, and you're not allowed to fail. So You know, it's not like you're a performer who's practiced something a dozen times before you go on stage. You're out there and you're committing to things that you don't know how they're going to turn out. And there is risk associated with that. And things go very badly wrong. It can cost people jobs. And so you're very attuned to that. You're very aware of that. Now, that said, in some cases, when I'm advising people, you know, I'll point out risks and I'll advise certain actions be taken. and They don't always follow your advice. I mean, they're the decision maker. You're not. So they'll think about it and they'll say, yeah, that sounds good, but I'm not going to do that. We need to do this. And you say, okay, you understand the risks involved in that? Yes, I do. Okay. And they do that and something terrible happens. Do you go, well, I told you so. I just knew that was going to blow up. No, you don't say that. You have to say, well, that was a learning experience. And let's talk about what we're going to do to recover from that. And Sometimes the client is willing to stay engaged with you, and sometimes they're not because they're saying, you should have warned me about that. You should have told me not to. You should have stopped. And it was like, well, I suggested that you not do that. That doesn't work (laughs) in terms of restoring trust. If they feel like in their own mind it was a shortcoming on your part as the consultant that caused them to fail versus a decision that they made, there's not much you can do to change their mind about other than to say, we are where we are. The choice going forward is either to try to work together to do better going forward from here, or for you to decide that I'm not the right person for you to be working with on this. And there are times when that happens. You know, This is the nature of change. This is the risk you take as a consultant. You're not always 100% successful at maintaining trust through these turbulent times. But I do think you can limit the times that you get fired, so to speak, because you have been concerned about things all along. You've spent enough time with the client talking about the choices they're making and the possible outcomes of those choices that they don't feel like you've left them kind of hanging on their own to make these decisions that have such important consequences for them and others. Well, as someone with four decades of experience, all of that is 
invaluable advice. And I think the message here for our listeners is at all costs, try to prevent breaking trust because it can be really difficult or impossible to regain if there is that failure moment and people will react in different ways that are outside of your control. Yes, that's right. You can never know for sure what's going to happen in an organization. And people don't always do things that are right or just or fair in times of change. Sometimes they act out of self-preservation and personal politics. And as a consequence, you can be surprised by some of the things that happen that you didn't predict. And because you didn't think they could possibly happen and you couldn't predict them, there's no way for you to warn your client in advance about them other than to say, you know, these kinds of complex transactions that you're involved in are subject to risks that we can't foresee. And we'll try to head those off, but there are going to be times when both of us are going to be surprised by what happens. Speaking of predictions, at the end of your book, do you talk at all about the future of work in the field of consulting? I talk about the future of work in another book, <laughs> but I think that when it comes to the future of consulting, we all know that we're going to be working more virtually, doing more work with tools that help us to use analytics to help us understand organizations more deeply than we can just through our own eyes. So the nature of the tools that we use, some of the actual methods that we use to do the work will change. But the kind of work at the top of the house that I'm talking about won't change in terms of the concerns for the relationships that have to be in place for you to do the kinds of things that are really helpful and valuable to top-level leaders. So it's still going to be a human-to-human relationship-based interaction that takes place. But of course, you know, what we have seen in the consulting industry is the growth of larger firms because they bring greater analytical capabilities to the fore on strategic projects, whether they be strategy projects or merger acquisition projects or efficiency improvement projects. The fact that they are able to bring in data from experience working with so many other clients and with so many different industries and so forth that can be used to undergird the work in terms of the tools and approaches is something that it's hard for smaller consultancies to contend with. So if you are going to be in a small consultancy or as a solo practitioner, what you're bringing to the forefront is your judgment and your wisdom, your experience, not necessarily the same tools that people from larger consultancies will be able to feature in the work that they do. So it's all the more important <laughs> to pay attention to the relationship and trust building. So whether someone's in a small consultancy or a big firm, this book is valuable to them in building the people skills that they need to maintain trust and build relationships at the top and advance in their career ultimately. What do you hope that your readers walk away with after reading your book? I think that most readers will say, wow, I didn't know that there was so much to learn about this work. You know, I thought I understood basic processes involved in doing this kind of work, but I never quite understood what I should have known about the world that my client lives in or the bases for this work in psychology, social psychology, the theories that underlie the way in which we approach a lot of what we do or the methods that I should master in order to be able to do the kind of work that I want to do in terms of strategy or succession planning or other things that are important to the top of the house. Knowing how to do those things is important. But the final chapter is really the one that I think most people resonate with, and that's talking about the kind of person you need to do this work. 
And not everybody is really cut out for it because you have to be able to demonstrate to the client that you know your craft, that you have the experience and the knowledge of the industry and the processes and the theories and the methods that are required from a technical standpoint to do this work. You have to understand their world in a way that says to them, you get them, you understand what they're going through. And you have to be the kind of person who they can trust. And that means how you come across as a person also matters a great deal. Who you are is as important as what you do, is one of the quotes in the book. I really believe that, that we can be quite confident in terms of the practice and the tools and simply not be the right person to work at top of the house where relationships are as important, trust is as important as the work that you do. Well, this has been a great interview, and I can't wait to get a copy of the book. And as we wind down, I have a few rapid-fire questions just for a little fun at the end. (laughs) I just want you to say the first thing that comes to mind. All right. What does it mean to feel successful to you? That my calendar is full. (laughs) That I know I'm going to be busy. That's what I love, and when that happens, I'm happy. What's something you've accomplished that you're most proud of? I have two daughters who are in the consulting industry, and I didn't intend for that to happen, but I'm very proud of them and the fact that they've chosen to do this kind of work. Something must have rubbed off. It was good. (laughs) And what are you most looking forward to this year? Well, of course, this book is coming out in April, so I'm looking forward to that. I'm doing a new workshop on digital organization design next week, in fact, so that'll be fun. And then for the remainder of the year, I'm looking forward to starting some new business opportunities related to the book and to other work that we've been doing on helping readers understand how to lead change from a behavioral perspective. So I'm quite excited about the new business opportunities and this new book and all that's going to bring. And what advice would you give to your younger self? Oh my goodness, I would avoid so many detours along the way that probably took me in directions that I didn't need to go and just relax and stay focused on the key things that would be important in the long run. Now, of course, I didn't know exactly what those would be at the time, but looking back, it seems pretty clear that there was a path that I've been on and that at times I've stepped off, <laughs> but it's <laughs> it's good to be on it and to feel like it's getting somewhere. And the last question, what's the best way our listeners can get in touch with you? The website is advancedchange.com. And that has ways for you to contact me and to learn about the book and learn about the various programs that we're doing. So that's the best way. Great. Well, thank you so much, Bill, for being on the podcast. I have learned so much from you in this short amount of time, and I'm sure my listeners have as well. Well, thanks for having me. This has been great. What did you think? I hope you enjoyed that episode. To check out all the links and everything from this show, go on over to handleeverything.com and click on this episode. Thank you all so much for listening in. I super appreciate you. Be sure you hit subscribe if you haven't already, and make sure you check out Dr. Bill Pasmore. He has some incredible things going on at advancedchange.com. And his book, Advanced Consulting, Earning Trust at the Highest Level, is available now on Amazon. Thank you again to Dr. Pasmore for being on the show. And again, thank you to everyone listening in. You're amazing. And I'm so proud of you for being able to manage all of the things on your plate. From me and the podcast team, make today the best day. And by the way, 
If you haven't subscribed yet, you need to because I want you to get notified when next week's episode goes live because it's continuing the conversation about relationships, only we're going to take a look at your personal relationships and how to bring the spark back with your romantic partners. So make sure you check back next week to hear that episode with Dr. Abby Metcalf. I'll see you there. Hey, in case I haven't said thank you enough yet, thanks for listening to the Handle Everything podcast at handleeverything.com. 